Good morning, everybody. Right now, we're in a series called Strange Days Indeed. And today's talk, I don't know how else to say this. Um, some of you come from churches where ministers talk in real soft, sonorous tones, and you know they don't upset the apple cart. You could not be further away from that today. And here's the deal I want to get to, because some of us are God followers, and the truth be told, we really don't care a whole lot about what God is doing in the world. We just want to be comfortable. And uh, for you, I would just suggest that you get your iPhone out or your iPad, and that you just check out for the next 40 minutes, because uh, today's talk would really unsettle you. Uh, but there's some of you who are players. And for those of you who are players and you don't want to be on the sideline and you really care, I think you're going to like what we're going to talk about today. Uh, with that introduction out of the way, let me just tell you that, again, our title is Strange Days Indeed. And what we're talking about is the fact that we are very likely living in the days that are soon before Jesus' return. We know that we are living in what the Bible calls the last days or the latter days. We already know that. That's a done deal. That train has left the station. Uh, throughout a third of the Bible is what we call prophecy, God telling the future, because that is what God can do. God is eternal. He doesn't live in the realm of time. He invented time for us as a measurement to help us, but God, God does not deal with time. So when he tells the future, it's as if he is reporting the past. third of the Bible is God telling us what's going to happen in the future. And, and throughout Scripture, the Bible tells us that Jesus' return and other things that we talked about in the first weekend are going to happen in what we call the last days or the latter days. That is defined for us in so many ways, but one way is very clear for us, and that is that Israel will become a nation again. That is a 2,500-year-old prophecy. For 2,500 years, Israel was not a sovereign nation. For those of you, and I was not, but for those of you who were alive in 1948, you lived to the greatest prophetic moment, or during the time of the greatest prophetic moment of all time, which is the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And the Bible defines that happening in the last days of the latter days. Now, I was around in 1967 when Israel got the entire city of Jerusalem, which allowed them to have the last day's temple that the Bible talks about. So I don't, I don't want to get you lost in all that. I just want to let you know we are already living in the last days. We have been in the last days for a long period of time. That train has left the station. My question is, where are we in the latter days? I don't know. And I'm not, a, I'm not someone who sets dates. I have no idea. Are we talking, you know, uh, this year or 10 years from now or 30 years from now? I don't know. I, that, that's beyond me. That's above, as the president said, that's above my pay grade. But I do know we are living in the last times. And here is the thing that I also know. Having heard messages all my life about the return of Jesus, I know that there are many signs in the Bible of Jesus' return. And those are clicking by so fast right now, they're like mile markers on the turnpike when you're traveling much too fast, okay? Because they're just clicking right by. For instance, um, uh, and I'm thinking about things that just happened this week. 
The Bible talks about in the, in the tribulation, this is after we are gone, after what the Bible calls the return of Jesus for believers. Some of you will know it as the rapture. Um, the Bible talks about a one world or a global economy in which all the economies are part of one economy and the Antichrist, which we, that's the term we have for him, he's just a world leader who basically sits over a congealed uh, collection of world powers. And if you read in Revelation 17 and 18, you read about the demise of the collapse of this one world economy. Well, just this weekend, you look at what's happening in Greece right now with the prime minister set to resign because the Greek economy is collapsing. And then on top of that, they say the Italian economy is right behind it. We've got U.S. banks that hold all kinds of Greek paper and Italian paper. And so we're, we're wondering what's going to happen to the global economy. And a lot of you who watch the markets go up and down with that. We are already a global economy. And then the Bible also talks about an invasion. I thought about this in the news this week. The, the Bible talks about an invasion. And again, I don't want to get, I don't want to get you off into a sidelight, but I personally believe this invasion happens at the very beginning of the tribulation, again, after we are gone, the, the Bible talks about an invasion of powers into Israel. It's scaled out for us in Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39. And the interesting thing is the top two players of that invasion. Well, let me just read this to you. This is Ezekiel 38. In future years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate, they had been brought out from the nations. Well, we watched that happen throughout the 20th century as Jews came from all over the world from many nations back in Israel. And the Bible says in the latter days, there will be an invasion of Israel. Well, you know who the prime two players are? If you read Ezekiel uh, 37, 38, 39, you'll find that the main two players are Russia and Iran. And, you know, that was just on the news this week, that the Iranians are close to developing a nuclear warhead and Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel has said, hey, we're not going to take this lying down. So I could just go on and on and on and on, and I'm not going to do it because I would waste your time and my time giving you the obvious, because the Bible has said all these signs. I mean, Jesus said there would be earthquakes and, and, and unusual places. <laughs> Don't step on my line. I was going to say Japan, Indonesia, Oklahoma. But none of those are the signs that speak to me the most. Jesus was asked one time, what are things going to be like right before your return? And his answer is the one that speaks a loudest to me. And it's the reason why I've devoted two weekends of a four-weekend series to this particular statement of Jesus. He said in Luke 17, verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. And then in verse 28, it was the same in the days of Lot. It's interesting that when people ask Jesus, give us the signs of your return in the future, instead of giving them a lesson in prophecy, Jesus gave them a lesson in history. And he said the times that characterize his return would be similar to the times of Noah and the times of Lot. And if you were here last week, just give me a second to recapitulate. I'm sorry I'm going to give you what you've already heard once before, but let me just, let me establish this. If, if there is a singular times before Jesus' return, and Jesus gives us a dual or a double set of times, then there have to be characteristics that correlate between those two periods of time so that they could, so that they could correspond to a single period of time. 
So what was it about Lot's time and Noah's time that was similar? And I gave you three things that we saw that Jesus gave us. Number one, that it was business as usual and people were just going about their daily lives oblivious to the fact that something huge was about to happen. And the second thing is these were cultures that God gave up on. Their wickedness was so great that God finally just said, hey, that's it. It's beyond repair. I'm going to eventually destroy them. And then the third thing that makes those periods similar was that there was an evacuation. In Lot's cases, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, you can watch this online. In Lot's case, the angels came and took them out of Sodom. In Noah's case, as we'll see today, it was a big boat. But in both cases, it was business as usual. God gave up and said, I'm going to bring judgment, and there was evacuation. And Jesus said, that's how it's going to be before he comes back. Why? Because it's business as usual. God is giving up on a culture. You can read Revelation and Tribulation understand exactly why and what it means for God to give up on a culture. And thankfully, there's an evacuation, which is the return of Jesus Christ. Now, here is where it gets very different. Because if you were here last week, I talked to you about the days of Lot. And it was, to be honest with you, I am the most positive guy in the world, but I did not enjoy last week's talk. Because to me, it was a downer. Did you feel that? Because there was a God follower who lived in those times, and yes, he got rescued. But Lot, as we saw, was all about the almighty dollar. And Lot didn't live for God. He was a God follower, but he didn't live for God. And even though he got evacuated, he got evacuated all by himself, and none of his family really got out with him. And on top of that, he had absolutely no impact on the people around him. To me, Lot is a sad story. But today we're going to take a look at somebody totally different. And this guy is Noah. And could I just say this here today, and regardless of your gender, you're either a Lot or a Noah. I mean, you really are. And, and I am. We're either Lots or Noahs. Because we are living in the times, I believe, before Jesus returned. We are in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. And either like Lot, we are syncing up with the culture, or like Noah, we're syncing up with God. And I got to tell you, this is the third time I've given this talk. It pumps me up. I mean, it's not just the caffeine this morning. I am totally wired. And I've lost some of you already, and, and, you, and, and probably you're a lost cause, so you probably should just veg, okay? Really, I'm serious. I, I mean that as serious as I can possibly be, because I travel this country, and I speak, and I run into more Christians who are God followers that really all they have is hell insurance. And they could care less about God. They could care less about what God is doing in the world. All they're thinking about is the next car they're going to buy, the next house they're going to buy, the next technology they're going to get into, the entertainment they want to get into. They don't care anything about what God is doing in the world. They are oblivious to the fact that we're sailing right toward an evacuation and a culture that God is about to judge. But we could care less about that. And so for you, I don't know, just play for a little while. But for the rest of you who are serious, who are Noah's, stay with me. It's going to get good, all right? All right, meet Noah. Uh, it's, I love this verse in the Bible because God basically says, meet Noah. This is the account of Noah, Genesis 6, verse 9 says. In other words, meet Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Well, when we hear the term righteous, we sort of hear like organ music and stained glass, and we think, well, he's a very holy Joe. Really and interestingly, that particular term has not so much to do with God Right means his relationship with people. Noah was right in his relationships with people. Now, why is that important? Because in just a few moments, we're going to read that everybody in Noah's time was godless. 
and they were, you know, screwing people over, and they weren't, they weren't honest. And yet, in that particular climate, Noah treated people well. Noah was kind to people who were mean to him. Noah was honest with people who lied to him. Noah was fair to people who were unfair to him. A lot of us here are God followers. We feel like it's all right for us to rip people who rip us. Some of us feel like it's all right to be unfair to people who are unfair to us. Some people, some God followers feel like it's all right to lie to people who lie to us. We sort of dumb down. We, you know, we play down to the level of our competition. And there's a feeling that if people screw us over, we have a right to screw them over. Because after all, that's just the way the world works. And for some of us, permission to do just about anything is everybody else does it. But don't you just sort of love the fact that Noah lived in a climate where everybody else was doing wrong, and yet Noah still treated people right. He was right in his relationships with other people. And then the second thing that we see about Noah was that he was blameless. And I want to just say, sometimes it's hard for us to translate these Hebrew words into English, and blameless kind of connotes the wrong idea. The idea is that he's perfect, and that's not what it means. It, it means he was right in his relationship with God. Here's the best English translation I can give you for the word. It means he took God seriously. Many of us don't. Many of us want to get God in the drive through window. And that's what some of us are doing even here today. I mean, we're at church, we're like getting God off our back or getting God out of the way. I'm doing the God thing. The next six days I'm going to do my thing. But Noah was not that way. I mean, he thought about God all the time. Noah was right in his relationship with people. He, was, he took God seriously. All right, you've met Noah. Let's meet the world Noah lived in, because Jesus said as it was in the days of Noah. In Genesis 6, verse 11, the Bible says the earth was corrupt. Read that, ruined. Now, all of us know what it's like to have something damaged that can be fixed, or some of us, or all of us know what it's like to have something that's diminished in value that can be restored, or you can just deal with the fact that it's got diminished value. But when something is ruined, you just send it to the trash bin. And interestingly, the Bible says the earth was ruined. Why? And this, this word appears three, three times in these two verses. It was ruined in God's sight. The way God looked at it, it was ruined, and it was full of violence. God saw how ruined the earth had become, and that all the people on earth had ruined their ways. I mean, can you imagine how devastated God is a God who, who is a God, he's an emotional person, and God looked down on his earth, and he saw that it was ruined. And, and the people had ruined themselves and had ruined the earth. That meaning is, um, the meaning of that is sort of advanced in these verses. In Genesis 6, verse 5, the Bible says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined. The word for thought there is what they planned to do, it's the schemes. In other words, when people get together, say, oh, you know, we're going to go do this. You know, when, when work's over on Friday, we're going to go do this. Or some of you, you hear people talk, well, you know, I'm working on this, I'm working on this, this gal. I'm working on this guy. And, and so everything they thought or imagined is to fantasize. So the Bible says everything they thought, this is a very powerful statement to me, was consistently and totally evil. 
And I'm thinking about the world that you and I live in. I mean, does it ring a bell? I mean, I, I go to a movie every once in a while. I mean, I'll be interested in something, you know, it's got some sort of historical significance. I love a great storyline. And you go to a movie and you try to sit there and you just like hear this, you know, unnecessary, gratuitous language. I mean, you, you, you hear God blasphemed and you're thinking, why, why do I have to sit through this to watch a story? I mean, how many times do we sit down to watch television just like I'm totally embarrassed? Well, you know why? Because we live in the times like the days of Noah. And the thoughts and the imaginations of people are consistently, and in many cases, totally evil. So God just said, I don't know what to do about it. Hardly. The Lord was sorry he'd ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I've created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing. Oh, for a lot of us with 21st century sensibilities, it's like, I can't believe God would talk like that. I thought God was a loving God. God is a loving God, but he's also a justice God. God looked down on the earth. He said in Genesis 6, verse 7, I'm sorry I ever made them. If I was ever glad to see a word in the Bible, it's the next word. But, <laughs> but, God said, that's it. I mean, you know, God is a God of emotion like you and I are, and he reacted emotionally and viscerally when he saw his earth that had been corrupted and ruined by people whose fantasies and imaginations and machinations were on evil continuously. And God said, that's it. I'm going to just, I mean, they've ruined my earth. I'm going to ruin them. But there's Noah. And when everybody else is screwing him over, He's good to them. When everybody's lying to him, he's telling them the truth. When everybody is, you know, messing with him, he is helping other people. And then on top of that, there's Noah, and he takes God seriously. So God said, well, I'm going to do what I do. But God came up with a plan. Guys, that's what God does. I love God for so many reasons. One of the reasons I love him most is that he always comes up with plans. Um, we're going to start a Christmas series the week after Thanksgiving, and at the time, it will be the biggest series I've ever been part of. Right now, this one is. <laughs> you know what Christmas is? We get a warm, fuzzy feeling at Christmas, and I do too, and it's good, and I'm glad we do. But Christmas is a rescue, it's a rescue plan. I did a series called Freaking Messed Up. It's still my favorite series after all these years. That's what the world is. And God so loved the world that what did he do? He sent his son into the world. A rescue plan. God comes up with plans. There's some of you right now who've given up on something in your life. Maybe you've given up on your marriage. Or you've got kids that you've given up on. Maybe you've given up on, on your life itself. I just want to tell you, if you will give God a chance, God will come up with a plan. Because that's what God does. So God came up with a plan, and, and his plan, I like this, build a large boat. Maybe it's a guy thing. <laughs> I love that. Build a boat. I can just hear somebody say, I don't, I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe Noah and the ark. I don't believe a big boat. Well, if you've got a universal deluge, a boat sounds like a great idea to me. <laughs> I mean, you know. 
Sounds very practical. God said to Noah, I want you to build a boat. Now, there's several things that stand out to me because, let me, I mean, here's the thing, guys. This is not a sermon about Noah. And this is not a sermon about the flood. This is a sermon about the days of Noah. And it's a sermon about you, and it's a sermon about me because Noah is long since in heaven. But here is the deal. We're living in the days of Noah. It's corrupt. Judgment is on the way. God has got an evacuation. God has got a plan in place. What is the plan? Believe on Jesus Christ, and when he comes back, we'll go home with him. That's the plan. Well, the first thing that stands out to me is that Noah believed God's plan. And, and this is in Hebrews chapter 11. I love Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is like the hall of fame of the guys and gals in the Bible who believe God. I've spoken many times in Canton, Ohio, at a church right down the street from the NFL Hall of Fame. I love going there. I'm a lifelong NFL fan, and it's just a very special moment when I stand before the bust of Roger Staubach. It, it, it's a very special moment when I stand before the bust of Tom Landry. Now, when you go through Hebrews chapter 11, what you have is you have the hall of fame of men and women who live their lives by faith. You, you have, you know, Gideon there, and you've got Sarah there, and, and all these great men and women who live their lives, and among them in chapter 11, verse 7, is Noah, and the Bible says, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat. Why did Noah build the boat? Because he believed God's plan. Let me ask you a question, and, and I'm not trying to be, I know I could sound harsh today, and that's the last thing I'm trying to be, but let me, I do want to be straight. I, I don't want anybody to walk out of here and say, what did Mark talk about today? You can walk out of here and say, I think that man is crazy. That's all right. I don't mind that. But I don't want you walking out of here today and saying, I don't know what that, what that was about. I want to ask you a question. The Bible has said that this world is not headed for a good place. I mean, the Bible has made it very clear that all the evil that's going on in our world today, God is going to deal with. But thankfully, for those who will put their confidence in Jesus Christ, even though we don't deserve it, even though we're not perfect, the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes, we will go to be with him. My question for you is, do you believe it? Because you could say, I don't. And that's a fair point of view. I'm not trying to jam you. I'm just asking, do you believe? Noah believed. Secondly, Noah personally engaged in the plan. In Genesis 6, verse 22, the Bible says Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. God said, build a big boat. Now, here's the thing. I want you to think about some things with me, and I won't, I won't spend too much time here. But Noah clearly didn't build this great ship by himself. And it wasn't just his three sons. Noah had to subcontract a lot of the ark. I have a good friend named Ken Ham who has a ministry called Answers in Genesis. It's a huge creation museum in Kentucky. They're building a theme park around a full-size ark because people were polled all over the world, and the question was asked, if you could see anything that's in the Bible in real, in real life at scale, what would you like to see? Number one answer, people wanted to see the ark. And so I saw the drawings. I sat, I sat in the room where they're actually doing all the schematics and drawings for this. It is a massive ship. And God's engineering for this, for this ship is huge. It's great. But one of the things that stands out to me is that clearly there were people who worked on the ark who died in the flood. But when God said to Noah, I want you to build this ship, Noah said, all right, I'll do it. If you're not a God follower, just please zone out on this one because I don't want you to really hear this. And if you're not a new springer, just listen with one ear. 
because you need to think about the ministry that you're part of. Noah funded God's plan. When God said build a, build a ship, I don't read that God said, now there's a pot of gold over here in a hole, go dig it up. I, God left Noah responsible for, for funding its construction. I think that Noah had been very successful in business. My guess is he was a builder. That's my instinct. I think he was a builder. And because he had been fair when everybody else was cheating people, I think he'd been very successful. And he could have just taken his money and he could have retired at the Riviera. But God said, Noah, I want you to build the ship. And Noah did. He funded God's work. I believe God is doing great things. And, and again, please don't feel pressure because you say, well, I, are, you, are you asking me to give to New Spring? Not if you don't believe in its mission. If you don't, then find some place where God is at work and fund that. But the fact of the matter is, there are many of us that if we were to lay our cable bill side by side with what we've done for God's work, it would show us where our heart and minds are. If some of us were to lay what we spend on entertainment or even what we spend on, on coffee side by side with what we do for God's work, it would show us. In some of our cases, it would show us how empty our praises are. Noah funded God's plan. And then Noah communicated God's plan. The Bible says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In my mind, I imagine Noah, I can sort of see him, you know. I see him with a hammer in one hand, and I see him with a Bible in the other hand. And that's kind of foolish when you think about it, because this is Genesis chapter 6, so the Bible would have been about the size of a pamphlet. But just give, give me the anachronism there for a moment. I mean, because Noah's building, and all this time he's like communicating. And I think what's happening, and you know, if you think about the size of the ark, it was certainly large enough to house the animals and definitely large enough to house Noah and his family. There was great room there for anybody who would have come along. And no doubt Noah was preaching to anybody who would listen, hey, the reason why we're building the ship is the culture has gone past the point of no return and God is going to bring judgment. And if you'll just be on the ark, you'll be safe. Please. I think he went to his friends and his coworkers and all the people who were subcontracting on the ark, and he begged them, please come with us. It must have been lonely. You know, this is just one of four services at New Spring, and I look out on the audience, and I think, we don't have to be alone like Noah was. Because if you look around this room, there are a lot of people who believe in God, believe in God's plan. But for Noah, it was just him and his family. And jokes, I grew up in Texas. We used to tell Aggie jokes. I don't know what you tell in Kansas. But back in the day, it was Noah jokes. Don't you know people joked about Noah? You know, laughed at him. Don't you know they gathered around to watch him build the boat? And he was, I mean, I'm sure that's what they did for entertainment. I mean, people got out there, and stand-up comedians must have stood up and done routines outside the ark. And people yucked it up at Noah's expense. In case you were here last week, one of the things that stands out to me is I'm amazed at the credibility Noah had with his own kids because they worked alongside their dad. Remember, Lot didn't have any credibility with his kids. When the angels came and said, hey, get your family out of here because you know, it's going to be destroyed tomorrow. Remember, Lot went to his grown sons-in-laws and daughters and sons-in-laws, and he said, hey, you better get out of here. And they thought he was joking. Why? Because he didn't have any credibility. 
He had lived for money. He had lived for pleasure. He was a God follower, but his life had not shown it. And when he tried to get his kids to pay attention, he had no credibility. I love the fact that Noah, when everybody else was laughing at him and ripping him, Noah had credibility with his kids. That's huge to me. Or all the people who laughed and joked at Noah's expense, they just didn't understand. They just didn't understand. Because don't you know it took years for them to build a ship? And they laughed and said, Noah, and here's the thing, the people had never seen rain before. At that time, God watered the earth in sort of a greenhouse effect. They'd never seen rain. And so Noah was explaining to them, look, we're going to get rain. And, and, and they'd never seen rain before. They were like a lot of you who live in, you know, a lot of us who live in Kansas, who were, you know, we've seen it, but our, we just love for our kids to see it. <laughs> and, Noah, and, and, and the thing about it is they must have laughed and said, rain, flood. Uh, and, and that's not going to happen. And then all these years, Noah's building a ship, and he preached, and he said, oh, this guy's just crazy. And it's just like some of us, we've heard about Jesus coming back. I heard that stuff when I was a kid. Yeah, I read that, you know, I read that book. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, listen to this. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. I've been a boss for a lot of years, and I've, 99% of my experiences with staff have been wonderful. I've worked with the greatest people in the world. But I can tell you, for anyone who works for me, the greatest miscalculation that anyone can make is to mistake my kindness for softness. And if that's true in a human sense, and many of you who are bosses, guys and gals who are in management, I, what I just said resonated with you completely because you've had experiences where you were kind and patient and long-suffering and somebody thought that was soft. If that's true in a human situation, it is infinitely true with God. But they thought, you know, God, Noah's done all this preaching. They don't, they don't feel any rain. But what they didn't understand was that God was just being patient. And for some of you, you flip God off and you say, I don't believe in God, and I don't believe in the Bible, and I don't, I don't see any signs of Jesus coming back. What you don't understand is that God is not soft. He's just being patient. And how patient is God? Well, in Genesis 7, verse 1, the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your family. In other words, the time came when God said, okay, Noah, it's time to load the boat. And then listen to this. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth and a very chilling statement, for 40 days and 40 nights, that meant everyone was going to die. God said, Noah, get into the boat, and in seven days, it starts. Now, think with me. Noah and his family are in the ark, and the door is standing open. And people must have laughed. Oh, look at them. They're in the boat. Look at them now. They're, they're there. They, they walked up there. I don't feel anything happening. The door's open. I've been listening to this, to this talked about ever since I've been a very little boy. And I've got to tell you, one of the most chilling lines in the Bible is Genesis 7, verse 16, where the Bible says, then the Lord closed the door. Not Noah. God. I wonder if anybody noticed Maybe after six days, people had just given up laughing because they'd already had their fun, the joke. I wonder if anybody noticed that 
very quietly, the door of the ark had closed. Jesus said in Revelation 3, I'm the one who opens doors and nobody can close them. And I'm the one who closes doors and nobody can open them. Right now, I just want to tell you, the door to heaven is standing open. When you walked into New Spring, whether you love God or hate God, the door to heaven is standing open right now. And you may, you may love this message, and you may think I'm a fool, and, and, and that really doesn't matter to me, because who am I? I'm, what, I'm just a communicator. But right now, I'm telling you, the door is standing open, but there will be a day, and I'm telling you, a millisecond after Jesus returns, the door will be closed, because somebody could say, well, I will wait till Jesus comes, and then I'll believe. I don't believe so. The door's open today. All right, I want to go to a place that just amps me up. I've been calm up till now. I have never shared this thought before a crowd until this weekend. I've shared it with many pastor friends. I've shared it with believers around the country. But I feel something. And this weekend, for the first time, I want to share it with the crowd. I do not believe we're just in the last days. I do not believe we're just in the last hours. I believe, and I mean this in a metaphorical sense, I believe we're in the last minutes. Hey, I'm not the only one. I mean, there's a group called the Doomsday Scholars. These aren't believers. These are Nobel laureate scientists who have what they call the doomsday clock. In 2005, they moved it, two minute, they, they, they moved it to six minutes before midnight. So that's, those are not even believers. They're just looking at world conditions. But I'm telling you, when I, when I look at what's going on in the world, I feel like we're in the two-minute drill. Because I look at all the things the Bible has to say will happen before Jesus returns, and I'm thinking, I'm convinced we're right at the edge. And I don't know exactly, I'm not trying to set a time or a date or whenever it's going to happen, but I think if you look at the history of mankind, I am convinced we're in the final two minutes before Jesus returns. And let me tell you what that says to me. And I don't know if anybody else feels this, you know, I mean, I just wonder, I keep thinking about the old Peter Frampton song, for, and for those of you young who have no idea who Peter Frampton is. But, but I, I just keep thinking about, do you feel what I feel? And if you don't, check out. But if you do, sink with me for a moment. I am so honored that God would leave me in the game in the last two minutes. That amps me up. I, you know, here's the thing. I, I, I love sports, and especially I love football. And there's one thing I've watched. When, the, when it's in the two-minute drill and the game is on the line, there are players who don't want to be on the field. They don't like the pressure. They don't like the exertion that needs to take place in the last two minutes. They are sitting there with clean uniforms, and all they want is a comfortable spot for the rear end on the bench. I know I'm not the most talented player. I'm probably not a draft pick. I'm probably a free agent. I never laid claim to being talent, talented. But I am one of those players that when I think about God leaving me in the game in the last two minutes, that just says, give me the rock. <laughs> you know, I, I love that. I mean, if I fantasize about my, I, I mean, here's the thing. I am leaving this place. I wasn't destined for this life, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. I was destined for the life to come. I want to be a player. And, if, and when it all goes to zeros, if I'm lying in the end zone with a bloody uniform, torn and dirty, that would make me very happy. 
For those of you who want to be on the bench, sit on the bench. But for those of you who want to be players, you're in the final two minutes. Get up off the bench and do whatever God is calling you to do. God has come up with a plan. If you believe his plan, if you'll engage in his plan and be willing to fund his plan and communicate his plan to others, you can be a player in the last two minutes. Do you feel what I feel? And let's do it. Let's do it. Father, thank you for what you taught us today. In Jesus' name, amen. could be here today and you say, Mark, I don't think, I, I'm not sure I have a relationship with God. And you heard that part about Noah, and you said, Mark, Noah was right in all his relationships with people, and he was right with God. And is that what I need to do? Could I just lovingly tell you that you can't do that by yourself? Because you could say, I mean, how many of us could say, Mark, I'd like to be right with all the people in my life, but I, can't, I couldn't do that today. Or Mark, I would like to be right with God, but I can't do that today. Let me ask you a question. Could you receive a gift? I'm not asking you, could you square every relationship with every person in your life and could you be totally right with God? I'm just asking you, could you receive a gift? Like, see, God came up with a plan to get you into heaven. And that plan was totally based on his son, Jesus Christ. God put him on a cross. And he gave his very life. And the blood that came out of Jesus' body as he hung on the cross was a currency that paid for all your sin and dysfunction. Three days later, he walked out of the grave alive. And as the Bible says, with the keys of hell and death. And if by faith you would reach out to him and receive the gift of eternal life, it's not something you can do for God. It's something God wants to do for you. See, God just wants you to make a start. He'll help you with the rest of it. He'll help you with that being right with people and being right with him. That's down the road. But if you're ready to receive the gift of everlasting life, you can do that right now. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, I know I have sin and brokenness and dysfunction in my life. But I believe you have a plan to take it away. And your plan is Jesus. I believe he died for me. And he rose from the grave. And I put all my trust in him. I receive the gift. Thank you for forgiving me and saving me. In Jesus' name.